co-host, Michael Soto. I'm your co-host, Landon Phillips. And we are Gender Gender Curious. The ways human beings experience and understand gender is always changing and evolving because human beings are always changing and evolving. This podcast is all about exploring all things gender with curiosity, not judgment. This podcast is for everyone who, like us, is interested in learning more about all things gender. As activist Marsha P. Johnson said, we have to be visible. We should not be ashamed of who we are. Today, we get to be one small part of making the trans community more visible. Yes. Um, We are going to continue our Trans 101 episode. We're going to be talking more about um, the trans experience and the gender expansive experience. Um, We want to make the community as visible as possible so we don't have to hide. We don't have to be ashamed. I'm really excited to get back into it. Me too. So let's Let's get get curious. curious. Today we want to start off by talking about kind of the why of um, being transgender. Yeah. And it we've talked a lot about um, being respectful, using pronouns, understanding identities and labels. Um, but I think a lot of people are still like, okay, but why are you trans? Like, why bother? Why not just stay in your lane, stay in your box? Right. Um, and we've talked about kind of like socially how people are trying to break barriers and be who they are. But another really big part of people's trans experience is what we call gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. which is um, like the, the psychological experience of not like your gender and your personal experience and your mind not matching your body, which can be extremely, extremely distressing and crippling even. Um, and it's something that we want to talk about what that experience is like and why that leads people to transition. Yes. So the uh, official definition of gender dysphoria um, is a sense of unease that a person may have because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. Uh, This sense of unease or dissatisfaction may be so intense it can lead to depression and anxiety and have an impact on the individual's daily life. Mm -hmm. That's one definition of it. We can offer a few others probably as well. Um, but this is a, it's an official medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's a mouthful. Um, so way back, Magnus Hirschfeld, a German scientist, was the really the first physician to distinguish between same-sex attraction or what we call being LGBT or LGBQ um, <laughs> today. So attracted, attracted to uh, someone of the same sex um, and what he called at the time transsexualism. Um, and then in 1949, David Caldwell uh, really proposed kind of the first official diagnosis, um, medical diagnosis, which at the time they called psychopathia transsexualis. Um, and then in 1966, Harry Benjamin, um, where the Benjamin standards come from, that were the medical protocols and processes that dictated transition when I transitioned, um, wrote uh, the transsexual phenomenon and is really credited with creating and populi- popularizing the term transsexual and the processes that trans people go through in terms of hormones and other medical treatments to transition our gender. Um, so 
before it was called gender dysphoria. Um, it was called transsexualism in the DSM, uh, but that was changed. I believe that was changed in the DSM four um, to gender identity disorder in adults and adolescents. And today in the DSM five, it's gender dysphoria. So we've had an evolution of this term and this experience throughout since the early 19th or early 20th century um, to today. Um, and I think our understanding has really grown as well um, in terms of gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder um, with our knowledge of the trans community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of that knowledge just had to take time because you have to follow trans people through their lives yeah. and see how treatment affects them and what the long-term effects of things are. Yes. And so it does, like, as more and more research is being done, more will be developed, but some of that does take time. But it's exciting to see how things are changing and being updated. Standards of care are being updated. Yeah. Um, we're trying to get the best possible care and treatment and an accurate diagnosis for people. Absolutely. Um, and the a diagnosis with gender dysphoria is not required to be a trans person. Right. But it is a big part of a lot of people's trans experience. Yes. So. Yeah. And it's... Um, something that can help facilitate the medical transition mm -hmm. and legal transition. Although on the same note, there um, is often pushback from the trans community of not wanting to be um, identified with, uh, identified by a medical process, right? Yes, and so there's yeah. a tension there. Some mm -hmm. people are very comfortable with that. Some people not. Some people are comfortable with it sometimes and not in other times. Um, and in fact, this is where, I think this is actually why transsexual, the term fell out of fashion is because it was associated so much with a, a medical diagnostic process, right? And so mm -hmm. there was some pushback on that. In the same way that homosexuality, the word, sort of wasn't something that the community yeah. identified with any longer in, like, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if, like, a diagnosis with gender dysphoria is important in places where that is required for you to get clearance yeah. to do any other, yeah. like, transition, like medical transition or legal transition. Yeah. Um, I do hear a, a lot of people um, that don't like using the word gender dysphoria because they don't like feeling like they have to be diagnosed with something. They want to just be able to be the gender that they are, and that's it. They don't need to, like, they don't want to feel like there's something wrong with them, like mm. they have something diagnosed that's wrong with them. Right. But for other people, it's really comforting to have a yeah. diagnosis because then they know what to take to a therapist and say, I have this concise diagnosis. I would love your support as I transition. You know, so some people like it, some people don't like it. Um, and I don't, I don't hear a ton of like arguing between trans people about it. I, from what I hear people, like some people use it, some people don't, yep. some people embrace it more. Um, but it is definitely important to talk about not necessarily the diagnosis, but the feeling of gender dysphoria. Yes. Because whether or not you have the diagnosis, that's still something that you could feel mm -hmm. and experience. Um, definitely. So Landon, what is the feeling of gender dysphoria? The feeling of gender dysphoria is so different for every person. Um, for me, and it's almost hard sometimes to like think back on what my dysphoria was like before I transitioned. Mm -hmm because dysphoria looks very different to me yeah. now that I'm like way more comfortable in my body. I've had top surgery, I've been on hormones, yeah. I, like I've like i transitioned socially so people use the right pronouns for me. So I don't have to, like 
I don't experience dysphoria on the daily. Yeah. Um, and so trying to remember back like, oh, what was it like in my body before? Um, but I, I, it was almost a claustrophobic feeling mm. of needing to get out of my body. I hated being in my body mm-hmm. and I didn't have anything against my body. Like I had a great body. I was healthy. Sure. Um, I had like the full hourglass ideal <laughs> going on. You know, like there wasn't <laughs> anything wrong with my body other right. than um, that the gender did not match. Like I looked in the mirror and that was not who I was. And that really threw my brain off for it to be so different. Yeah. And I just want like I hated everything that was feminine about me. I just wanted to like rip my skin off and crawl out and be born again and be a man. Um, and it was like I, when I was in college, there were like whole days I would just lay face down on the ground, mm. like almost the whole day because I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't think about anything else mm. while I was in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made it really hard to interact with other people. Like I'd finally be in a mental space of being okay. And then I'd go outside and someone would say she, and I would like spiral because mm. all of those feelings would bubble back up. And I, so yeah, it was not a fun time. I was not functioning at all when I was at that level of dysphoria. Yeah. It's, um, for me, the, you talk, you're talking about looking in the mirror for me, I remember looking in the mirror and saying like my birth name and being like, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. That's not me, you know? And like mm-hmm. looking in the mirror and you know, my mom was really big on me having long hair um, until I wouldn't take senior pictures unless she let me cut my hair. So, <laughs> um, and uh, finally had, you know, finally my, at the beginning of my senior year, I was able to cut my hair very short and when I looked in the mirror I saw a little bit of me right I was getting I was like oh I kind of recognize that person or I'm getting closer and before just not recognizing myself right and the distress like the fear of not recognizing like you know I think that's a hard thing for Mm -hmm. people that are cisgender and look in the mirror and do recognize themselves and have always recognized themselves that is a very scary thing to not see yourself back in the mirror right Mm -hmm. and um just sort of the base level of panic (laughs) i guess that i felt until i transitioned um and it's funny um (laughs) actually this week uh, i was out in east mesa at an event and um was talking to the people that were running the facility kind of wrapping things up and i went to high school in east mesa and so um I have the same last name, a different first name. Um, and one of the women there said, do you have a sister named? And she said my birth name. And I'm so, the dysphoria has changed so much for me. Like the, you know, transitioning changed that for me. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel dysphoric anymore. Mm-hmm. That I just said no. And the birth name didn't even register for me. Cause I was like, oh, she said, do you have a sister? I'm like, no, I don't have a sister. And then I was like, oh wait, well, <laughs> I was like, but <laughs> I was like, I am trans, and that was my birth name. And yeah. she was like, oh, and I was, but it didn't even, you know, it didn't even hit me. Like it didn't bother me. It didn't even register to me that she could possibly be referring to me. Transition changed my life that much, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was like, oh wait a second, I should explain more, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, it was just this funny moment. She was uncomfortable. I was not uncomfortable at all, right? And I was just like, yeah, this is just my life, you know? And I don't know. So, like, that's the difference of like, yep. where before I transitioned, when someone said my birth name, it was like being punched in the gut every mm-hmm. time, right? And like, that's a hard thing for people to ex- 
to understand that haven't experienced that for when someone just says your name or uses pronouns that aren't don't resonate that aren't you right the the way that can feel like someone knocking the wind out of you every time they do it you know mm-hmm. yeah. I had um I kind of felt like a baby for mm. a while where like when babies have a tummy ache, they don't know what's going on. They yeah. just know that they're uncomfortable and they cry and they don't know what to do about it and they can't communicate it. And then as they grow up, they learn to have words and they learn to understand like, oh, that pain means, you know, that whatever's happening to my body. Right. And I just felt like I was in so much pain and I didn't know what gender dysphoria was. Mm. I didn't know that being trans was an option. Right. So I was in so much distress for such a long time with no words to describe it. Mm-hmm no vocabulary to even like understand i didn't even think that like i want to be a boy i just hated Mm -hmm. myself and my life even though myself and my life were great yeah but like it was just such a distressing and then once i started like having words for things it started making more sense and i started having experiences um like where people would because i cut my hair short when i went to college which helped a little bit I didn't realize how much it was going to help until I did it. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can, like, breathe. Yeah. And then I went – I was at, like, a church, a very gendered church function, uh-huh. and I went to, like, sit with the woman, and somebody was like, don't – no, you can't go in there. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, it made me so happy. I could not stop thinking about it the whole day, and my roommates were all making fun of me <laughs> that somebody thought I was a man. But I was like, oh, my God, somebody thought I was a man. Like, right, like, and awesome. I really, I like thought it was so novel. And for a while, I was like, oh, I'm just like not like other girls. I'm more masculine. And I started <laughs> playing with that. But the more and more I felt validated in my gender, the more I realized that that's what hurt before. Yeah. And then I started understanding, like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with my body because it's feminine. Yep. Not, you know, like, yeah. so that helped a lot having those moments of gender euphoria where mm. I felt really good about my gender made me realize like, oh my gosh, that's what's wrong. Like, that's what hurts. Yep. So, and that's something that like, it's so important for people to be able to experiment like that. Yeah. To try it and be like, oh, that feels good. Like, that's why I'm so distressed. Or they'll try it and be like, Doesn't well, that didn't do anything for me. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah. Know. Both can be true. Um, so Landon, what is the difference between gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia? I hear these get mixed up a lot, mm. including by my psychiatrist when I was first coming out. Oh, no. I told her that I had gender dysphoria and she had never heard of that. She said it was body dysmorphia, but since I hadn't lost that much weight, I didn't have an eating disorder and so it didn't matter. Oh no. <laughs> Which was, you know, a lot of levels of not correct. Yeah. But body dysmorphia, it does tend to be associated with eating disorders, but not always. Um, but it's like looking in the mirror and feeling like you are deformed in some way. For some people, it's feeling like they are super overweight, even though they could be severely underweight. could be feeling like your nose is a really disturbing shape or something is wrong with your forehead or whatever it is. They see something extremely distressing about their body that feels deformed in some way, and that can cause some really unhealthy behaviors trying to like mitigate that. Um, And that experience is just very different and not related to um, gender dysphoria, and some people will have both. Right. Um, it's possible to have both at the same time, but they are different experiences. They just sound similar, so people get them mixed up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what's uh, another term that I've heard a fair amount these days is gender incongruence, um, and yeah. I'm actually hearing a revival of it um, because I, that was a term I heard. When I was first coming out, too, um, 
What are your thoughts on that? I, the only places that I hear that phrase are very conversion therapy type places. Okay. Like I hear that a lot in communities. Like it feels to like in my experience, and this could not at all be, but every time I've heard that word, it's been in a space that is not super like they're quote pro trans and it's like a support group, but they tend to be like super religious, super conservative, very much trying to suppress the trans experience and people don't want to say that they're trans like they're ashamed of being trans and so they'll say they have gender incongruence so that's when i hear it is when people don't want to say trans and they don't want to call other people trans they don't really want to bring up trans they want to treat it like a disease that people have and so they say gender incongruence which is not what the term is for and not how it's always used but in my experience every time i've heard it it's been in that kind of context so it's not something that i like to use because it's just like associated Mm -hmm. Um, the only difference that I've been able to find uh, doing some research on this, um, gender dysphoria is in the Diagnostic and Statistical mm-hmm. Manual, which is created by WPATH, right? And so that's an international organization that creates this manual for mental health professionals um, and for health professionals to better help their patients, right? With any number of things, basically everything. Um, it, gender incongruence pretty much describes the exact same experience or the exact same thing definition-wise as gender dysphoria. It's just the term that is used in the International Classification of Disease, which is created by the World Health Organization. So So same idea, two different... Two different diagnostic manuals, it seems. That's kind of the... And and it does make sense. I think WPATH is a more progressive-minded organization than the World Health Organization. So kind of that, I can understand why... um, from perhaps a more conservative or conversion therapy lens they're using. They're using that gender model. Incon- yeah, they're yeah. using a more conservative model oh, than WPATH. So that I was didn't the know that. I didn't yeah. know that's where they came from. Yeah, that was the only difference I could find. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, like, if you use that, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, I'm not trying to say that it's sure. like bad or anything. Yeah. It's just like a different way to describe the same thing. And certain terminology resonates with people better than others. Yes. And if gender incongruence is it, then that's cool that there's another like term yeah Yeah. all right so we want to cover a few more uh terms and uh kind of define those for you specifically in relation to trans people um so we've we shared some about these terms in our gender uh what is gender episode but we're going to go through them again specifically in terms of trans folks so let's start with gender identity Mm mm-hmm So your gender identity is like your internal sense of self. Um, It's like deeply held inner feelings uh, about being male, female, both, neither. It's not something that you can see externally or measure. Um, It's a very personal internal experience. And gender identity can be like if you're cisgender, Mm -hmm. the gender that you were assigned at birth and your gender identity might match up if you're transgender. Uh, your gender identity might be something or would be something different than what you were assigned at birth. Um, So that's just kind of a description of your internal experience and feeling of gender. Yes, and I think for trans people specifically, because our gender identity does not match with what we were assigned at birth, that's where the dysphoria comes in, Mm -hmm. right? That's where the distress comes in because we're not able to align those things automatically we need to go through other processes to align our gender identity, right? And mm-hmm. so, and to, and to 
feel whole in our gender identity and seen in our gender identity because it's um, it's not something you display on the outside. It's an internal sense of being. And so for that to be recognized by the rest of the world or not recognized by the rest of the world can cause that either dysphoria or lack of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So gender expression um, is how you choose to express your gender identity, right? And this can be through your name, your pronouns, your hairstyle, your behavior, your voice, your body feature, your features, your clothing. Um, it includes using facilities like restrooms and locker rooms um, that match with your gender identity. Um, you know, society often thinks of these as, as being male and masculine or female and feminine, um, but that's, uh, but what's thought to be masculine and feminine changes over time and within different cultures, right? And so this is gender expression in lots of ways is, um, it's the way that we are showing other people our gender identity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and or, playing with yeah. that gender identity yes, too. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's, so. that's kind of the part of gender that I refer to as like the art form yeah. is being able to show the world how I perceive myself yeah. through the way that I present my gender. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, if we look over time, right, like things like style of dress, right, or... Um, hairstyles, right? Those change over time Mm -hmm. for people that want to express certain gendered things. Um, And that's just a part of that gender expression, right? Is like short hair or longer hair or hairstyled in a specific way of the time, you know, like Mm -hmm. clothing of a specific time. Um, Like dresses for men, perhaps not popular in the 20th century, um, but in other cultures, like the Scottish culture, men wear kilts, right? Which are essentially very long skirts, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, so these things aren't fixed. You know, gender expression isn't fixed. It's something that is cultural and that is of specific times. And it's how people tell you something about their gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they can, you can kind of like mix and match. Mm-hmm. So having long hair could be feminine or it could be super masculine. Yeah, Like some men sure. that have long hair, it can be part of their like masculine vibe. Yeah. So there's different ways to like combine mm-hmm. um, self-expression methods to like really portray who you are. So each individual thing doesn't necessarily have to be like male or female or masculine or feminine, right. but the way that you combine those things and play with those stereotypes and those ideas and um, can just give you like a million different ways to yeah like come off to other people and to express yourself which is really exciting and fun to play with yeah absolutely um another part of gender expression um you know uh, certainly a topic of gender expression right now that is discussed a lot that actually intersects with performance is drag mm-hmm. um and so in lots of ways I think of all gender expression as a performance because in some ways it is, right? When you're getting up and deciding what to wear in the morning or deciding how to cut your hair or style your hair that day, um, and not a f- I don't mean this in a flippant way, but we're all performing our gender for other people so that they can understand things about us. That is at the core of gender expression, right? And drag is sort of a, an art form based on that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And... Um, all kinds of people can participate in drag. Mm-hmm. You do not have to be transgender to be a drag performer. Oh, yeah. A lot of drag Often performers not. are not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they are <laughs> cis men yeah. for the majority who will perform yeah. like a perform 
an exaggeration of certain traits of womanhood sure. for performance, sure. not because they are women or identify as women. Um, and some performers will use she, her pronouns while in drag and then he, him pronouns outside in the rest of their life that they live as male and are happy to do. And I would love, 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 love to do a drag episode so we don't have to like we'll do tell that. you every single thing about drag right now. Yeah. But it is a performance of gender. It's part of gender expression and not so much a part of gender identity. It does not necessarily have to correlate. And people who perform drag can be trans also. Like they, they can overlap, but they are... Um, like somebody who is drag does is not necessarily transgender. Yeah. And I think legislation that affects drag is like trying to target the trans community, but they're right. not the same. They're not the same. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a bummer. It's uh yeah, it's a confusion of Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people don't understand where it comes from. They just see, oh, gender that's not normal. Mm -hmm. It must be like the same idea. Right. And I'd love to um bring up because um, I was just talking to somebody about this and I would love to hear your thoughts yeah, on yeah. it. Um, somebody was referring to their like trans child as cross-dressing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was trying to explain that, in, at least in my head, like this is the connotation that I have of cross-dressing is like somebody dressing as a different gender for and for performance and mm. for self-expression um, and not like if somebody is trans like a trans man dressing in men's clothes is just dressing <laughs> like we're not cross-dressing <laughs> we're just dressing um, and cross-dressing sometimes has a sexual connotation to it sure um, but I like I don't live in a world where anybody says cross-dressing at all. So I would love to hear like in yeah. your experience, what is cross-dressing and how does it relate to the trans community? Such a great question. Um, I think the answer is all of those things are true. Um, and so I think cross-dressing or being a someone who identifies as a cross-dresser was I think much more popular in the 20th century um, and popular before transgender and all of these other terms that we um, identified and talked through in the last episode were more prevalent or popular to, as they are today. Um, and so cross-dressing um, was actually a part of the Benjamin Standards of Care, like a, that was part of the social transition was to officially cross-dress. And again, I think that's a part of the past century when perhaps um, gender expression based on clothing was a little more rigid um, or a little more prescribed for this is what is acceptable for men to wear and this is acceptable for what women to wear what women wear because these standards were really created in the you know from the uh 40s to or well really 30s to 60s you know those that's kind of that was a very different time mm -hmm. in terms of standards of dress and expression and so um so so that phase of the transition process for trans people used to actually be a part of cross-dressing was a part of what you had to do to get the medicalized process right you had to socially transition and cross-dress and for a year actually you had to socially transition before you could start hormone therapy or get anywhere near surgeries and so um so i think that's a term definitely that's um maybe comfortable for people that are more comfortable with that era of thinking or that style of thinking that men wear specific things and women wear specific things. There's 
that's a real different world now, you know, in terms of 2023, we have very different social expectations of what men wear and women wear, and it's much more free and open um, to personal interpretation regardless of gender. Um, there is also, there at least were, I don't, I think there, I mean, I'm sure there still are people that identify as cross-dressers, um, but that used to be an identity that was rather prevalent in, and included in the trans umbrella and in the trans community. So um, cross-dresser, there used to be support groups, in fact, that were um, a part of the trans community actively here in Arizona and other places um, that actively included people that identified as cross-dressers. And so these are people that um, would present as often as the gender they were assigned at birth in their day-to-day -day life, um, especially in public, and then in other often more private um, settings, whether that was at home or perhaps at uh, special conferences or gatherings for people that also identified as cross-dressers or as trans, um, those folks would cross-dress into the gender identity that they felt um, also comfortable in sometimes more comfortable in, sometimes just also comfortable in. So I think it's all of those things, <laughs> which yeah. makes it a little complicated. Um, but it's definitely not an identity that I hear talked about much, I think because there is stigma, or and talked about much today in 2023, um, because there is that sexualized stigma, I think, attached to it, and this idea that cross gestures are engaged in some sort of fetish-based activity mm -hmm. instead of um, this being, you know, uh, an identity, I guess. So, or a practice of just dressing in clothes that are expected of the gender you are not assigned at birth. So, all of that yeah. <laughs> is the <Okay>. answer. <laughs> and the term, the the term that describes that, like this, the sexual use mm -hmm. of cross-dressing mm -hmm. would be transvestite. Mm -hmm. Yep, that also um, used to be so. Which does get real mixed up with yes. transgender. Yes. Um, and transsexual. And transsexual, yeah. Yes. So they um, that is a different concept. And somebody, like, I'm sure there are trans people who also, like, use gender expression in a sexually exciting way, and that's fine. But, um, be like, being a transvestite and being transgender are two different concepts and there is nothing innately sexual about being transgender mm -hmm. yeah and so this is so interesting because again when i came out more than two decades ago um the umbrella or the terms under the umbrella at the time were um there are very few people that identified as transgender um but then there was transsexual transvestite and cross-dressers and those were kind of the labels that were used at the time um, and the official definition um, for a, trans, a transvestite, um, when it's used as a noun, this describes a person who dresses in clothes primarily associated with the other sex. And when it's used as an adjective, it means um, wearing clothes associated primarily with the other sex. And so that's sort of the official definition oh, of a transvestite. Yeah, it's so fascinating. There's all these facets, right? Um, and language changes, right? Like yeah. when I came out, transvestite and cross-dressing or being a cross-dresser were actively used in our community um, and identities actively associated with our community. And I, there are certainly people today that identify with those um, two terms, but mm -hmm. they're not as popular in the yeah. lexicon today. Yeah, and I think especially for younger people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
All right, so let's talk about gender roles now. So what are gender roles? So gender roles are how we're expected to act, speak, dress, groom, conduct ourselves, um, and those are based on our um, assigned sex. Yep. So, um, for example, girls and women are expected to be typically feminine, Mm -hmm. um, which includes being like very kind and polite, accommodating, being the nurturer, being quiet, yes. And then men, um, kind of on the other side of that, are expected to be strong, aggressive, bold. They're supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be assertive. Um, And every society, ethnic group, and culture has gender role expectations, but they can be very different uh, between those groups. Um, And they also can change within each society over time. and we talk, I think we talked about this in our last episode where pink used to be the masculine color, <laughs> yeah. blue was the feminine color, and now they flip-flopped. Um, and uh, so the, it does change over time. Um, and it is, uh, I think we talked about last episode as well, based generally in just stereotypes that yeah. may or may not be helpful or healthy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so growing up, you know, gender roles were very dominant in my mind because they they were it felt very strict in terms of what was what was okay for girls to do and what was crossing over into boy territory that was mm-hmm. unacceptable and you know my family always called me a tomboy because I've always been a masculine existing person <laughs> and so that was the term that was comfortable for them to label me with and the expectation was very much that I would grow out of that someday and someday would be comfortable uh, being a wife, a mother, and a woman, and would want all of these things that the women in my family wanted, right? From bearing children to being a wife to being a homemaker, all of those sorts of things. Um, I always knew that wasn't for me and was always like, absolutely not, <laughs> you know, and got a lot of, and made fun of a lot of my family for uh, <laughs> <laughs> not. Uh, wanting those things and thinking that that would persist and people, you know, my aunts or other folks in my family being like, well, that'll change. Just wait, give it 10 years or whatever. And did not change. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, gender roles, I remember every Sunday was a fight, right? Like m- my father or my mother wanting me to wear a dress to church and me being like, absolutely not, right? Because that was the gender role. That was what was expected of me as a someone they perceived as a little girl to wear a dress, to be meek and polite and quiet and, you know, have the long hair and love the long hair and want to wear ribbons and bows and, you know what I mean? Like, to want all of these things, and I never did. And so gender roles were always something that caused a lot of tension in my life and in my family. Yeah. 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 And those, the experience of feeling like gender roles aren't for you or that you need to push back against certain gender roles is both a transgender and a cisgender experience. Yeah. And we talked about that, that in our cisgender episode with yeah. Liz and Eric about how even within their cis experience, there were certain gender roles that did not work for them and certain gender roles that they totally embraced and celebrated. Yeah. Um, and so not feeling like you fit into your gender role does not mean that you have to be trans. Right. Um, it just means that gender role isn't for you, and you are more than welcome to break out of that. Exactly, exactly. Especially today, right? That was a lot less acceptable in other times in the United States mm-hmm. and Western society. But today we have a lot more freedom in terms of gender roles. And I think we challenge gender roles a lot, right? From professions to ways of dressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
these types. So these roles and expectations um, that are based on these stereotypes and just any stereotype revolving around gender mm-hmm. um, can cause unequal and unfair treatment. Yeah. And a lot of those stereotypes are at the root of sexism um, and sexism in return fuels those stereotypes. Yeah. So a lot of those expectations about women supposed to be quiet are grounded in sexism against women yeah. um, and are kind of like, the roles that everyone has decided men and women are supposed to fill can be the difference between like an assertive woman being a bitch and an assertive man being a leader. Yeah. And like those types of things, the way that people are perceived differently and the way that they're treated differently is a lot of times based in those roles and how you do or don't fill them. Absolutely. When we see stereotypes sometimes being used to as sort of backlash when gender roles begin to change, right? So I think the uh, World War II is a great example of mm-hmm. that. Um, while women of color have often had to work outside of the home, um, World War II was a time when white women and women of uh, wealth and privilege were expected to not work in the home, right? They were expected to work in factories, building munitions, building airplanes, right? Very different gendered role than what was expected before World War II of women, specifically women of privilege. Um, But then we see in the 1950s, a very serious reinforcement of the stereotypes of especially white womanhood, right? To get white women back in the home, playing that gender role um, that was acceptable and reinforced after the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a hierarchical system and one group breaking out of that system threatens the power of another group, there will be pushback (laughs) and a lot of times. I mean, I don't think Every individual man is like, no, I no. want to main like be dominant over women, but yeah. the, that's kind of what the structure is designed to be, mm-hmm. and it's really easy for it to stay that way because we have such deeply ingrained stereotypes and roles for yeah. gender. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, I think we are seeing we're in part in it uh, the political environment that we are in right now in terms of transgender people with um, two very clear sort of extremes, <laughs> you know, and two very clear sides um, because gender roles have changed so much in the beginning of this century and the end of last century. You know, it's kind of the backlash period to that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about gender as a whole. Um, so gender as a whole um, encompasses a lot of what we've already been talking about. It is a social, cultural, and legal concept, um, legal, uh, social, cultural, and legal identity that exists for people. Um, It's how your identity relates to society's ideas about gender, in fact, Um, and so, and about um, society's ideas about who women are, who men are, um, people of any gender are. For most people, uh, their gender matches with the cultural expectations, again, of the the sex that they were assigned at birth. and this is, again, cisgender people. Um, but for others who are transgender, agender, two-spirit, right, genderqueer, any of these things, not gender, uh, gender fluid, non-binary, um, those expectations um, of what it means to be a gendered person don't align with their sex assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just realized that a, a, a category we forgot was two-spirit. We haven't defined that yet. so. Oh, yes, Landon, do you want to share a little bit about who two-spirit two people are? I don't know 
that I know okay. enough to speak on that. Okay. Like I know two spirit people, but I don't want to misrepresent unless I look up a definition. But if you feel qualified to define that. Why don't you look up a definition okay. and I'll share what a little bit that I know. So two spirit people, um, this is often a term that refers to people of um, indigenous ancestry and heritage um, and uh, ethnicity um, who identify as um, this often categories of perhaps a third gender of person. So it could be someone who is assigned male at birth that lives as a woman within that community. Um, and two-spirit people are uh, a valid and recognized uh, gender within many indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. um, the definition that I pulled up um, says, traditionally Native American two-spirit people were female, male, and sometimes intersex individuals who combined activities of both men and women with traits unique to their status as two-spirit people. In most tribes, they were considered neither men nor women. They occupied a dis a distinct alternative gender status. And then it talks a little bit about how in some cases there are differentiations between two-spirit people that make a fourth gender. Um, but some common traits are that they had specialized work roles, so they played a unique role uh, in their society. Mm -hmm. um, gender variation, um, which can include like temperament, dress, lifestyle, spiritual roles. Um, and then spiritual sanction. So um, a lot of times they fill very special religious roles like healers, shamans, ceremonial leaders, which I think very is so cool. cool. That's awesome. Um, and then um, same sex relationships yeah. as well. Yeah. They're believed to be lucky in love. <laughs> That's, That's so awesome. nice. Wow. That's cool. So very different cultural expectations we're seeing around gender there in a indigenous society as compared to a Western society like mm -hmm. the United States. So, um, great. So sex, um, do you want to cover this one? Yes. All right. So sex is, um, the kind of like biological basis of your gender expectations. Yes. So that's kind of like the male or female assignment that the doctor gives you when you're born. Yep. It's usually based right off the bat um, at your uh, reproductive anatomy, your mm -hmm. genitals. Um, can also be based on your chromosomes, right. but there's a lot more things that affect mm -hmm. your biological sex. Um, and if you would like to learn more about that, I'd love for you to go back and listen to our intersex episode, and yes. we'll do more intersex episodes in the future. But there are a lot of factors that affect sex and there really isn't just male and female there are a lot of intersex conditions and yeah. combinations beyond the two yep. but typically when people are referring to your biological sex yeah. they mean what you were assigned at birth by the doctor yeah. based According on your genitals, your genitals <laughs> right yeah. and this is also recorded on your birth certificate mm -hmm. so when you are born this is determined legally for you right away within moments of your birth yeah yeah um so sexual orientation, right? This is who we are sexually and romantically and emotionally attracted to as human beings. Um, certainly not the same thing as sex, gender, gender identity or any of this, but related in some way, right? Because we're often attracted to people perhaps because of their gender expression um, or some characteristic like that. Yeah. So, um, and because there's like a stereotype um, and it is more common for like, for example, gay men to be more effeminate mm -hmm. and for lesbian women to be more masculine mm -hmm. and not every single person, but you know, it's like a space that's more open for women to be masculine, men to be femi feminine. I've heard a lot of people have the idea that 
if a man is so gay, he'll become a woman. A woman. Mm. And if a lesbian is so lesbian, she'll want to be a man. But it is not related to sexual orientation at all. Right. Um, and a lot of trans people, I think it's the majority of trans people, but I don't remember the statistic because it's been a while, are um, attracted to the gender opposite what they were assigned at birth. Mm. Um, so like a lot of trans women are attracted to women and a lot of trans men are attracted to men. So like we became gay by being transgender. <laughs> <laughs> so like the the rates of like being homosexual in regard to like your biological sex okay. are the same in trans people as outside. Gotcha. Except for that a lot of trans people like we're already in the queer community, so we're sure. super open to like embracing and accepting and experimenting and you know, like we're we don't have a choice to like right. <laughs> not be like we're already queer, we're already halfway there. So <laughs> so it is more common for people to like be op like sexually like less repressed, I mm -hmm. guess. Or queer. Yeah. yeah, but um, but it's it's not linked to your gender identity. Right. So if you transition, if you're a trans person who transitions and you are assigned male at birth and you transition to be the woman, the trans woman that you are, um, your sexual orientation doesn't necessarily change. Mm -hmm. You're you're still attracted to who you were. Your sexual orientation is the the same as it was. Yeah. Pre and post transition. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd, I'd love to dive into that in its own yeah, episode and maybe it would be a cool guest because I feel like my sexuality did change when I transitioned. Interesting. Not because it was actually like changing, okay. but I was not comfortable being in a relationship with a man when I was presenting female because I didn't want to be the woman in the relationship. Right. So I thought that I wasn't attracted to men. Gotcha. And then I transitioned and I married a man. So I love it. So there is like some fluidity in it as yeah. you become like comfortable in your own body that does affect your sexual relationships and sexuality, yeah. which would be fun to get into another time. Yeah. But generally I think what we're trying to say today is that these are sort of they're not characteristics. Yeah. yeah. Like your sexual orientation is just part of who you are. Your gender identity yeah. is part of who you are. They're not necessarily linked, but yeah, sometimes there is some fun other. like intersection. Yeah. 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 I like that. There's intersection, but they're not dependent on each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this would be a really, I agree. This would be a fun episode to like explore because um, it used to be a part of the Benjamin standards of care that the expectation was that after you transitioned, you would be heterosexual no matter what. So like, like if you transitioned to male, yeah. you would now have to be attracted to women. Exactly. Interesting. Or, yeah, so that was like a part of it. So yeah, this, we'll, we'll explore more around this as we go. Um, but that leads us to what does transitioning mean? So now that we have this understanding of sort of um, how these the all of these things, gender identity, gender roles, right, sex, sexual orientation, relate to trans people and they relate to everyone. We all have all of these things, right? Everyone has a sexual orientation. Everyone has a gender identity. Everyone expresses their gender, right? Everyone has a sex. Um, so now that we understand those things, what does all of this mean in terms of transition and what does transition mean? Yeah. So there's a couple of different like types of transition, I guess. And yeah. one of them is social yep. and that tends to be the first type of transition that people make. So that would be like how we cut our hair, 
and the way that we dress, um, changing name, changing pronouns, asking people to refer to you um, a different way, um, embracing your true gender um, in ways that are social and how you relate to other people and how people relate to you, yeah. um, and not making any net, like deep permanent physical changes yet, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this also has a legal component mm -hmm. um, because a part of the social transition process um, is to make sure that your uh, your gender identity is it reflected in your legal documents. And as we just talked about, um, your sex on your birth certificate is recorded within moments of your birth. And so if you're going through a, as well as your name, um, <laughs> if you're going through a transition process socially, um, you're changing your name often as one of the first things that you change. Um, and so changing your, your name and your sex on your official documents becomes a part of that transitioning process um, in part so that people recognize you um, mm -hmm. after a, a certain point in the transition process um, so that people are using the correct name um, and so that things like driving or travel are safe for you because yep. it's congruent with who you are um, in your transition process. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and there's there's a lot to think about with social and legal transition. Um, it's not as easy as oh, I realized I'm trans. I'm gonna it's not easy flip over. <laughs> it's yeah. not that simple. It takes a lot of work. It is like I mean, and it can be expensive to go buy new clothes Very. and to get a good haircut that you like. Mm -hmm. um, to pay for the legal fees to, to change. pay all yeah all of it yeah. And it can be really overwhelming, and you if you're having really bad dysphoria or depending on the area you live in, you might not feel safe going to a courthouse. Mm -hmm. um, you might not feel safe in your family. It could be a really, really big deal for you to show up for that first Thanksgiving dinner yeah, yeah. wearing new clothes, you know? Yeah. So, And then legally, um, how is your insurance gonna react to your gender marker changing? Yep. Are you gonna face like discrimination medically because your legal identity has changed? You know, like there's, there's a lot of things to think about all can be like none of it's the end of the world. You can right. overcome it and work through it, but it is a complicated process. It's, it's not just like you wake up one morning, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. gonna be a girl now. And you know, like yeah. it is a very difficult, complicated, often has to be strategic. Yep. Um, it's a lot of effort and a lot of work and it like everybody's brave yeah. in transitions. Yeah. We have to be. We have to be. But still brave. <laughs> yeah, and we're taking on a lot to do that. Like it's not a flippant process. And so I remember, um, you know, during my 20s, I was very much living paycheck to paycheck, finding coins in the couch to survive, like, you know, just really just barely getting through because I didn't have any family support and, you know, was very much on my own in the world and trying to figure out how to make that all work. And so, you know, I didn't have the $500 to, that it would take to legally change my name until I was in my 30s. And... Um, that was a whole lot of money for me at the time. And so I remember I uh, got a job um, at a social service agency and I had to bring in my ID, you know, to fill out the employment paperwork and make it all official. And I kept putting it off and saying I had forgotten it because it had my birth name on it. And my, uh, the employer didn't know that I was a trans person at the time. They just accepted me as who I was and didn't know I was trans. And I was like, oh, I have to out myself in order to do this and I remember the executive director coming to me uh, and sitting down and being like so 
what's the holdup? Like, do you have a felony? What's going on? I was like, oh, God, this has gotten so much more complicated than it needed to be. And I was like, no, like, I'm just, I'm a transgender person. And so my name, you know, is my birth name. It's not the name you call me or the name that I want to be known as. And my ID still reflects that, you know? And they were like, whoa, didn't expect that, right? Like, that was like, <laughs> but, you know, it got, everything got so much more complicated because I had so much shame around <laughs> this ID and I hadn't come out and was so excited to just be who I was in this workplace and then mm -hmm. had to out myself and go through all of this. And it was, yeah. it was a lot, you yeah. know? And it's not an easy process to go through it requires courts and then changing all the paperwork at every single social agency that has identity around you right yeah. at your bank but I, I still I can't pass a credit check because oh no <laughs> is your old, name because an old account will, won't stop reporting my yeah. credit under my old name. Yep. And so, like, I'm not even on the mortgage of my own house. Oh, my <laughs> like, goodness. Oh, because my goodness. I, yeah, so it's it's a lot to change and to keep track of. It can be it very is. overwhelming. Yeah. And there are little things, like, I was out with people that I wasn't out to. Yeah. And that I wasn't sure it was safe to come out to. Sure. Um, at a job that I had, and we went out after, and we bought food. And they didn't ask for our name. They were just calling the names that were on the cards that we gave them. Oh, no. And my debit card still had my old name on it. Yeah. And I didn't really think about it until I was, like, the first one that they called. And they called my name. And I couldn't get up <sighs> to go walk over there. So I had to, like, wait. And then they called other names. And then I went and got it off the counter. You oh know, like, gosh. I had to be, like, all sneaky. Oh. And I've had a couple times like that where it's not a safe situation. But then the, the name pops up because it's still on your documents. And yeah. you have to, like, decide... How, how to deal with it out there you're willing to put yourself yeah so yeah it's um it can be a lot it can be overwhelming it's mm -hmm. a lot to do and think about but it's so i guess i just i'm not trying to say that so that like trans people who are listening will be like oh my gosh it sucks and it's gonna be no, so much not at all. but i want everybody else to recognize how big those decisions are yeah. and that people can't do this flippantly on a whim just for fun. Right. Like these are huge decisions that people are making with their lives and it takes a lot of effort and sometimes a lot of pain to go through that. So if somebody is doing that, they are serious. Like we, <laughs> we are serious when we're doing this. It's not yeah. just like, Oh, you know, it'd be funny and trendy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably don't uh, go through all of these legal processes uh, just because you're bored because um, it's a whole lot of time and energy and it takes years to do, honestly. I mean, it's, um, and it can involve lots of very awkward phone calls and fights with insurance companies and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's the social transition process. Let's talk a little bit about the medical transition process. Mm -hmm. So you want to kick us off? Yeah, so um, usually one of the first Sometimes it's required before you can have surgeries, mm -hmm. but oftentimes it's like the easiest one to start with as well is going on hormones. Mm -hmm. um, so trans masculine people can take um, testosterone. Yep. Um, I do it by injection, except for that I haven't taken it in like <laughs> six months, oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but do it by injection. They have patches, they have gels. Yeah. Um, trans women take estradiol, is that right? I think there are a couple of different uh, that's one of them, uh, but they take they have estrogen. More they have more like options options yeah. than trans men just take testosterone. <laughs> uh, so for estrogen and for female uh, hormones, you can take them orally, whereas for testosterone, you can't take it orally mm -hmm. because of the way your 
uh, body processes hormones and how hard it would be on your liver and kidneys. So that's why we have to take it by uh, intermuscular injection or some other transdermal process mm -hmm. so that our bodies aren't processing it multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at least when I was transitioning, I'm actually not sure if this is uh, the case anymore. Um, we had to go through, uh, we had to have actually mental health care therapy um, before we could start hormones. Um, that's so how it was for me too. I had too. to have a, okay. letter, a yeah. letter from a therapist. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of the first step in the medical process is you go to a therapist, um, you go through therapy to the point where, um, for me, it was a year. I had to go through therapy for a year. Mine and was not a year. It was just, I know. just needed the letter. Ah. <laughs> Mine was a year. I had to go to therapy for a year, talk to the same therapist, and then they would write the letter um, that said, okay, Michael is a transgender person, the appropriate, you know, this is the diagnosis and this is the appropriate treatment, and then I could take that to um, an endocrinologist or an internal medicine doctor and get hormones. Um, and then I had to go back to therapy to get top surgery. Um, in fact, I had to have the letter uh, letters from two therapists, from two psycho psychiatrists. I, uh, I feel like I may be... I needed a letter from a therapist and from my, like, general practitioner or something. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But I could just be making that up. I don't remember. It was a long time ago when I got them. <laughs> it's like five years ago. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. So, the medical transitioning process... Um, has protocols and has, you know, sort of a process that you go through to be able to access hormones. I know there have been changes from the Benjamin Standards of Care to the new WPATH Standards of Care, um, and that the push has been for there to be, I guess, less gatekeeping, so less mm -hmm. of having to go back to a mental health care professional or having to have a letter, right, to take the next step in your transition process. Um, which I think there are pros and cons about, you know, I think people should be, I think trans people should be, uh, believed about their, who they are and our healthcare and should be actively involved in that process. Um, but I also really strongly believe that medical professionals are important in that process because they're who safeguard our health, you know, and make sure yeah. that we're okay. You know, I mean, I know I get my blood tested regularly to make sure my, cholesterol isn't absolutely insane and that so that my liver is functioning and my kidneys are functioning and as I get older that gets even more important to me is like you know really having my medical team <laughs> deeply engaged in my overall health including my transition mm -hmm. care mm -hmm. yeah yeah especially for like surgeries are considered elective mm -hmm. for trans people they're not mm -hmm. considered medically necessary generally by insurance, by insurance. yeah um, which is unfortunate because then things don't get covered. Right. Um, but because of that, like, it is weird to me how many hoops I had to jump through to get chest surgery when anyone else could have walked into that same doctor and got a breast reduction mm -hmm. with no need for a therapist to write a letter. Yeah. So, like, it, some of it, like, seems like way unnecessary gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. But I really do, like, like, they are life-altering decisions. Yeah. And yeah. some surgeries are, like, more intense and... I just think it's a good idea for anybody making any of those decisions, any type of medical decision that's big like that, to be consulting a therapist and doctors and make sure that you're healthy yes. the whole way. Yep. Um, but I think some people just don't have access to the resources that they need to be yeah. able to get that clearance to get gender-affirming care, Right. Um, which is where it's 
very gatekeepy and unfair and unfortunate. Yeah. But I agree with you. Like I do think people should be seeing doctors along the way and make sure that everything's done in a healthy way. Yeah. And everybody's gender transition is unique. Yep. And some people need things that other people don't. And it's yeah. just it's just good to have a medical team helping you through that. It is. It's really important. I mean, you know, like you said, so many surgeries are considered uh, by insurance companies, uh, gender affirmation surgeries, um, cosmetic, like uh, facial feminization, right, mm-hmm. for trans women. But that can be the difference between being safe when you're, you know, a trans woman mm-hmm. and walking down the street and not, you know. And so... Um, and again, it's a big change, you know, like I, I know when I had top surgery, I woke up with a massive smile on my face, even though I was in a lot of pain, you know, I was like, yes, this is awesome. I have a flat chest and like looked down and just, you know, was overjoyed. Um, and it was still a hard surgery, you know, and both of those two, those things are true. Like it's physically difficult and rigorous to go through these things. And it was joyful for me, right. To, yeah, to transition. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know. I'm. I hope that, or I, don't know, I would think that um, it is weird how other cosmetic surgeries can be just on demand without you know sort of the therapy and help that people may need. And maybe the answer is actually that for any of those surgeries, you yeah. should probably go see a therapist yeah. first and make sure that you're not getting surgery for something else that doesn't need surgery, yeah. <laughs> right? Because the rates of people that regret. Other oh cosmetic yeah, surgeries, cosmetic surgeries. Yeah, way, of way cisgender higher. people. Yeah, cisgender oh, people. Yeah. Cosmetic surgeries way high. Any surgery actually right. higher. Higher than gender regret. Absolutely, surgeries. absolutely. So it is silly to me that, but some of that might be because they don't have to go through the process. They, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no like filter or support or help, yeah. and even things like hip replacements, people regret more totally. than gen- gender yeah, affirming, than gender affirming yeah. surgery. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that very well maybe because our medical system doesn't take care of the whole person, right? Yeah. And so when it comes to transitioning healthcare, I'm a big advocate of making sure you're taking care of yourself as a whole person. And that's why I think therapy is so important. So I think being an active um, patient who's advocating for yourself, bring people, if you're not comfortable with that, bring a friend with you or a family member who will help you advocate for yourself. like. I mean, I'm a big proponent of all of that and making sure that you are picking the medical team that that is the right choice for you, right? Don't just settle for any doctor, like interview doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Make sure you are comfortable with your doctor. You feel like you are treated appropriately in that medical setting, that your needs are met as a whole person. Um, but I'm just a big advocate of that, I think. We got to take care of ourselves. Um, these are big medical interventions, just like any medical intervention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and your body will change afterwards, just like my body changed with gallbladder surgery or my tonsillectomy, right? Uh, or my thyroidectomy. It also changed with my top surgery, all of which were important in my life and big medical choices that made my life better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some things are irreversible. Yeah. Um, to an extent, like if sure. I, for some reason, detransitioned yeah. and wanted to get a breast augmentation, I could do you that. Could. Yep. I could do that if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, like hormones cause some effects that are irreversible, right. like our voices being deep. Or facial hair. Facial we hair, like electrolysis. we can't, yeah, yeah. Then we can't take that back. Mm-hmm. Um, but other things like testosterone affects your body fat distribution. Yeah. Um, kind of makes you more masculine shape. And I lose that when I'm, Right. off of it. Right. So there are some things that are um, 
reversible, some things that are irreversible. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things that don't matter either way because I can have a deep voice and be a woman if I wanted to. You know, <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> I don't it's know. True. But yeah, they, they're big, um, big decisions. And if you are wanting to kind of, I it took me a long time to start hormones because I was yeah. just scared of like changing my body. But yeah. I went on a low dose and mm -hmm. I took my time and I was consulting with doctors, consulting with a therapist, making sure everything was right uh, for me. Yeah. And it ended up being a really incredible process. I have zero regrets about Absolutely. anything. Yeah. 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 Well, and making sure that you're comfortable with the process is mm -hmm. really important. And so working with your medical team so that you are taking on the amount of change and transition that you can reasonably handle at that time is yeah. different for everybody. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes changes. I mean, I like when we talk about reproduction, right, there are more and more transgender people that um, are working with medical teams so that they can have children in whatever way their body will allow them to have children and they're still trans people, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're, but they want to be parents and so they, and biologically parents. And so they go through those processes with their team, not to detransition, but to have children and continue to be the trans person that they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, that's something I, can't imagine myself making the choice to have a child in the way that my body would allow me to have a child. But if I went off hormones and worked with my medical team, that's something that I could attempt, right? And try to do. I hate thinking about that, me but too. you're right. It's so uncomfortable <laughs> and not okay for me, but for people that it is okay for great, more power yeah, to them, you know? Awesome. I mean, in some ways, you know, like if uh, that would be, I, it would be cool if I could easily become a parent and make that choice for me that's a much more involved choice that i can't imagine um because it would be very gender dysphoric <laughs> and mm -hmm. i don't think i would survive it yeah. <laughs> um, but you know there's again lots of ways to be trans lots of ways to medically transition and to continue to be a human being in other facets of your life right from reproduction to anything else while you're a trans person it's all a part of your medical care and it varies by person yeah and requires a good medical team yes 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 definitely <laughs> and the motivation for transition yeah. generally is to ease gender dysphoria right. and it is personal. So like yeah. getting my top surgery, I needed that to want to exist in my own skin. Right. And it also was pain relieving because I was wearing a chest binder mm -hmm. and I was pretty large chested. So sometimes I was wearing two of them. Don't oh do gosh. that Whoa. for like 12 hours a day. Oh. Don't do that. Whoa. And so, um, getting top surgery was like extreme pain relief. And like, it took me a long time to like get, be able to use my back normally again after oh, that. Man. Cause I like really messed myself up. No. But like, so I needed it for myself to be safe, to be pain free, to feel okay in my body. And then there's kind of this other aspect of it where it allows other people to see me the way that I want them to see me and treat right. me the way that I want them to treat me. Right. Um, and oftentimes the goal of that is so that people don't even know that you're trans right. and you can just live however you want to live. Yep. Um, and we call that passing. Yes, we do. So like I pass usually as male. Yeah. Um, and so people don't wonder whether or not I'm trans. I just live a male life and right. having top surgery helped with that. Being on hormones helped with that. Um, I get misgendered every once in a while still because I've been off hormones and I'm non-binary and so I'm more feminine sometimes yeah. especially when I'm out with Anya who was on our pronouns <laughs> episode yes um, they're my sister and I was when I'm out with her um like she is very clearly queer yeah like 
looks very lesbian. Uh-huh. And so when we, like, our neighbors know that we live together. So uh-huh. I think the assumption is, like, oh, I must also be just, like, a super, uh-huh. like, b- butch lesbian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for some reason, when I'm out with them, I, like, it was misgendered way more. So depending on, like, the context, sometimes people will, like, yeah. but it doesn't bother me as much anymore because, for the most part, like, I feel good in myself. It's just, like, awkward when I get misgendered. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to say to that, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so a lot of the transition is to help pass, mm-hmm. um, and that concept of passing without people knowing, um, we call stealth, like yep. being stealth as your gender, uh-huh. um, but the concept of passing is not always a very healthy concept, mm. um, because you shouldn't need to pass to be respected as the gender that you are or to be safe as or to be safe right. yeah. yeah and so and sometimes like i want to pass because i have dysphoria and mm-hmm. passing helps ease my dysphoria yeah. um but i don't like hearing from the trans community or the just like the general lgbtq community right. that if i don't pass that i'm not good enough at being trans or i'm not trans enough like if i don't medically transition enough for them then i'm not really trans right and so having that standard of passing mm-hmm. as like your value as a trans person is really harmful yeah. and something that i think tends to come from like newly trans people mm-hmm. who are really dysphoric and so they want to pass so bad and then they like project that onto everyone else yeah but you don't have to pass to be your gender and to deserve respect and validation sure or to be i mean there should be everyone should be able to be safe no matter Mm -hmm. what period right like we should all be that's what we're going for at least or i hope that's what we're working towards as a as humanity is a world where people are safe in their bodies safe from harm right safe in the workplace um able to live healthy productive lives as humans um, and so passing or anything else shouldn't be a requirement to be able to be safe as you're walking down the street or um, safe in your workplace or in a doctor's office mm-hmm. uh, or wherever. Um, yeah, we want people to not face violence and discrimination and passing should not be a requirement of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but passing used to be, so again, I'm going back to the my time of transitioning um, in the standards of care, the end goal was absolutely passing and being stealth and in fact at a certain point um well most therapists at the time and most medical teams encouraged you to move after you transitioned to a new place where nobody would know that you were trans Um, so you could be passing in stealth the rest of your life Um, which did also create a sense of fear right because if the only way to accept trans people is if nobody knows that we're trans that does often mean that there's violence on the side if people do know that you're trans, right? Um, mm-hmm. Away from my microphone, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it, <Thank> there's, <laughs> yeah, it may mean that there's violence if people know that you're trans or discrimination. And so the goal today is not um, for people to pass and then become stealth so that you never know that they're trans. The goal today is for us to accept transgender people and for us to have the same rights responsibilities and liberties as cisgender people um, be able to exist in society and be productively a part of society so um, yeah passing and stealth are interesting issues Mm -hmm. and I think also different generational experiences for sure yeah Um, yeah yeah I 
I don't think about being like I don't think about my gender every day. Right. I really don't. I very. I think about it all the time now that we're doing this podcast, <laughs> and it's fun to think about. But like I don't. I'm not consciously really aware of it, and I forget that I'm trans all the time. And I love it. <laughs> like I, I really just like I don't know. I don't think about. It. I don't feel like anything is weird or abnormal about me because I just like I'm so used to being me, and I'm just me. Yeah. And so sometimes it's nice to be stealth because sometimes other people will make that your identity. Right. Like they'll treat me being trans like it's this huge part of me when I really don't feel like that's yeah. a defining like part of myself. Right. And so sometimes it's nice for people to not know because then I don't have to deal with other people like thinking of me different or like making a big deal out of it. Sure. But it also can be really exhausting yeah. for people to not know and to feel like you have to maintain that. So in situations where it's not safe for me to be out, it really is so tiring to like, oh, I gotta remember. It's like. Mulan, you know, it's like, oh, I gotta remember, I gotta walk a certain way now and like yeah. spit, and <laughs> then they'll accept me as one of their own. Right. Like it, it, it's tiring, and not very fun. I enjoy more spaces where nobody cares. Yeah. That I'm trans, but they know, but it doesn't matter. Right. Which is what my workplace is like now. Mm. Which I would have been stealth there, except for I work with Anya. Yeah. And Anya didn't know that I was gonna work there. Oh no. And so they had already told everybody. Oh my gosh. Which I'm fine. I'm totally fine with them telling anybody that they want to tell. Like, oh yeah, my brother's trans, and he said whatever, whatever. Yeah. But now they all know. <laughs> which I hated at first, but now I really appreciate because I don't have to hide anything, lie about anything, twist the truth in any way right. to like get away with things I can yeah. just be myself just and be nobody you. really cares yeah it's so nice <laughs> that's awesome um, yeah it's such an interesting balance of those things of like I think anytime when my personal safety feels at risk it makes everything harder right and more exhausting and frustrating and scary um, and I've also experienced a lot of joy passing you know mm -hmm. like I love people just seeing me as a man the only thing that really gives me away at this point is my height. Um, I wish I had been taller. Uh, maybe in my next life I'll be like six <laughs> five. Um, not in this life though. I'm five feet tall, um, and so that's really the only thing that you know gives anybody pause <laughs> for like. Hmm. But it's not necessarily at this point like people don't misgender me, but I don't know. Sometimes there can be awkwardness where people are like. I think he's, you know, I think he's a trans person. And if I'm not out to someone, it can be awkward. But then I just come out and I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Let's just alleviate the awkwardness. Yeah. I'm a trans person. Don't worry about it. We're good, you know. I feel like for someone to pin you as trans, mm -hmm. they'd have to have such a strong radar. <laughs> and I don't it know happens. anybody who has a radar that strong that isn't trans friendly. Really? Oh, I do. I've but, experienced oh, it. Man. I've experienced oh, man. it. I just like can't imagine <laughs> like I would never have known that you were trans ever. Like I, but I also that. like I I'm around short men all yeah. day every day because I, all of my friends are trans men. So, <laughs> so you're just used to and short we're men. all short. Yeah. I love it. That's true. We're not we're not very tall generally. No. But uh, but being around other short king trans men does make me feel tall. That's true. You are tall in our world. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, I love it. All right. So this all kind of leads uh, into naturally, I feel like, because we're talking about safety, um, mm -hmm. into kind of understanding where we're at right now in terms of basic rights and protections and safety for trans people, because um, this is very much still a reality um, in the lives of trans people of facing discrimination, violence, um, and a lack of sort of access to, to many basic things like housing, 
employment ability to use a public restroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's for like I felt like I got caught up on what all the legislation was and how trans people are affected and where we did and didn't have equal rights. Mm -hmm. But there's so, so much anti-trans legislation happening right now that I can't even keep up. I'm like, yeah. I don't even know if uh, it's legal for me to exist anymore, but like, <laughs> like, I don't even, like there's so much happening and then yes. things pass and then some things don't pass, but there's always like a threat of some really intense anti-trans legislation that's gonna lead to violence and it's scary or that are gonna cut people off from gender affirming care or that are going to make it really easy for them to lose their jobs or lose their housing. So there, yeah, there's there's a lot going on, but can you give us a picture, kind of like a baseline picture of where we're at legally right now? Yeah, um, so that's a really in big question these days um, because we are seeing an unprecedented amount of bills that are seeking to legislate in some way, both at the federal level and at the state level. Um, the way that trans people exist in life. And so um, it's gotten a lot more complicated. Three years ago would have been a different answer. Four years ago, much different answer. Um, and, you know, we really first saw this type of bill coming into um, being. I think the first bill here in Arizona was in 2012, and then we had another one in 2014. Um, and these were like bathroom style bills that were trying to say that trans people shouldn't use the bathroom or ID related bills like trans people can't change their IDs. Um, Arizona is often the place where these kinds of bills start, interestingly enough. Um, we, they test them here um, very frequently. And so we had our ver very first battles with these kinds of bills um, a decade ago or more um, and defeated them, thankfully. But um, the movement to um, really regulate or change what's available for trans people in terms of medical processes and many other things in life um, learned from those lessons, unfortunately, um, and from those defeats. And really in, what was it, 2020, as the pandemic was starting, sort of renewed efforts um, to legislate trans people in ways that's different than cisgender people and changes what we have access to. And so, whereas the push for the LGBTQ community is always um, is focused on expanding protections and expanding liberty, and that's usually what we do in this country, right? We, we tend to, overall, historically, we see that our definitions of liberty, personal liberty, who has access to it, freedom, expand and we're doing good. We know we're doing good when that's happening, right? When we're making the vote possible for more people, when we're um, like people of color, like women, right? <laughs> Who were not originally allowed to vote in this country. Um, we know we're on the right track in terms of expanding these ideas of liberty and freedom um, and citizenship. But right now for trans people, we're in a, a place of contracting our rights, right? Of contracting the personal liberty and freedom that is afforded to us. And so, um, this year, all-time high, over 600 bills have been introduced federal, between the federal government and the state governments, um, and we see many things passing, um, like restrictions on um, the medical process that people can go through um, to transition or not. Um, we, we also see the trans athlete issue is like a thing right now where we're debating 
um, in the public sphere as in general, uh, can we balance both fairness in women's sports and participation of trans people in sports? Um, this often leaves out people like you and I, right? <laughs> trans masculine people or trans men. Um, and is really focused on uh, the participation of trans women and trans girls in women's sports. Um, and so, you know, what I see most commonly is, or what I think is the most common trend, I mean, one, this is being politicized for the gain of political parties and political candidates and people on far extremes of either end of the political spectrum, right? Um, that's really what this is about. It's actually not because we haven't had uh, good rules around these sorts of things in the past. Arizona is a great example. Um, we, I think when we passed the trans athlete ban, not this year, but last year, um, I think there had been 11 transgender students total in the state's history that had ever wanted to participate in competitive sports at the K through 12 level, 11. Uh, most of which were trans boys, mm -hmm. not trans girls. And um, they also probably are not dominating their sport. No, not They're at just all. wanting to participate. Right, they want to play. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that was Arizona. We passed the bill anyway, but at the time we had a board of highly qualified doctors and athletic professionals that would decide on a case-by-case case basis um, what level this person could compete at, if they could compete on uh, the team that aligned with their gender identity or if they had to stay competing with the uh, gender they, or the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, so we had competent professionals, right, making those decisions on a case-by-case -case basis, um, which worked, right? We didn't have any controversy in Arizona. We didn't have any, you know, this is unfair. And in fact, the one case that the year before, um, the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Center for Arizona Policy had brought in a young girl, or, or a girl, uh, who was playing on a softball team, I believe, and her father, um, who accused another player of being trans, and therefore their team lost. That girl wasn't trans. She was a cisgender girl. Um, and so we saw, we really see this accusation culture developing, actually, where the parents of girls in competitive ath athletics and other girls in athletics are, are accusing other cisgender girls of being trans when they're not. In Which is scary in places that are trying to make it legal for genital inspections yep, exactly, on kids. Exactly. Which was part accused, of the bill. If you're accused, then yeah, scary, yeah. scary stuff. It's yeah, it's all you know, it's all <laughs> very, very much rooted in uh, enforcing pretty extreme things, um, and and really what it when it comes down to is most of the things that most of the fear that motivates this type of legislation actually isn't true. Like the, a good example is that a uh, young woman and her father mm -hmm. accusing another young woman of being a trans woman and saying that's why they lost their championship when she was a cisgender girl just like his daughter, right? And just like that young woman. And so um, what you really see is there are these myths and ideas and fear-based ideas um, that are motivating people to say that transgender people should not fully participate in society. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah. that's always a scary thing, right? We know that, um, and in fact, I mean, I, what it really is, is it, it's a part of authoritarianism and trends of autocracy that are trending globally right now. Uh, we know that the way that authoritarianism begins is by picking one group of people or a couple groups of people and saying they're the problem, they're the scary people, they're who we need to limit and control and society will be better. And so 
I'm very wary of this type of legislation because it is so deeply linked to authoritarianism, and that's a bad thing. We know that. <laughs> we don't want that in human <laughs> societies. It leads to really bad outcomes. Um, but there are also trends to legislate um, medical access for both children and adults. Um, you know, I think that it is very clear that for transgender people, we have pretty solid, we, we need better, we always need better medical treatments, we always need more research, we need mm -hmm. things that are based on scientific understanding and medical understanding. Um, so those treatments can certainly imp improve, and I hope they do over time, um, so that they become easier, less painful, and more effective. Um, but we have a strong treatment process right now that is effective and that helps people like you and I, after we transition, to no longer feel that dysphoria, that, you know, that feeling that disconnected from ourselves, right? We're able to leave, mm -hmm. lead healthy, functioning, productive lives yeah. after seeking treatment and transitioning. Um, and so that's very healthy. We know that treatment is very good for adults. Um, I think right now our society is having a discussion of how do we support trans children, right? You know, what's the appropriate medical process? Um, I didn't transition as a child, so I don't have a lot of answers on that. I know that it is good to support children in figuring out who they are, and my goal is also always happy, healthy people and families, including children. Um, I know there's a lot of question right now, like when is it appropriate to do puberty blockers? When is it appropriate for HRT to begin? There's also some, um, I think there are some cross diagnoses or other things that also other diagnoses that may include a bit of gender dysphoria or some gender distress, but perhaps those folks aren't trans. We're, you know, we're kind of figuring out some of yeah, these things, yeah. right? And Which so. Which feels like a conversation for doctors and mental yes, health professionals and is. not for politicians who don't know anything Couldn't about agree it. more. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. I think that's the answer, right? Is like, how do we empower doctors, medical professionals, psychiatric and mental health professionals, right? Scientists. <laughs> how do we create stronger mechanisms for those people to figure this stuff out, right? To mm -hmm. make sure that... Yeah everyone no matter what your need is you are getting the right treatment for who you are as a person right yeah. and whatever that is um so yes i couldn't agree more i think we're going the wrong way in terms of um we're trying to have the government intervene into things that would traditionally be the medical sphere or the family sphere <laughs> or yeah. you know things where the government doesn't really belong um it's something that people can rally people around. It is. You can make people afraid of trans people, you can yep. rally them together, you can control them. Yep. A lot of things that they are trying to control that are in the spotlight right now that everybody's arguing about were non-issues. Yeah, absolutely. Non-issues yeah. before politicians decided to make people afraid of them. Absolutely. Um, and it is like it's a political tool more than it is an actual health concerns that are happening to right. the children in health America. Health and wellness you know? issue, yeah. Um, and yeah, well, and like you said, like the the answer, the appropriate answer to the question, should children transition medically, is that should be something that's answered by those children, their families, and their medical teams. Mm -hmm. um, and that we should be empowering and investing in medical professionals and scientists to figure out what the answer is, right? You know, like, I, yeah. That's just, these are big questions that shouldn't be handled by legislators. <laughs> right? yeah. these and are, like the money that's going into people who don't know anything about it, arguing about it, that ridiculous. could be going into like the research and development yes. treatment plans. Like, yeah. Totally, but totally. Yeah, 
So, but yeah. you know, I mean, it is like, you know, and we always learn things, right? Like I think um, something with uh, young people transitioning is that sometimes when you put a young person on puberty blockers, they don't develop enough to have the trans related surgery later, right? So that's a legitimate thing that we need to understand better, right? But again, that's for doctors, <laughs> that's for families, that's for science professionals and medical professionals to figure out, not legislators, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So lots going on uh, in terms of uh, the sort of legal processes and the debate around transgender people and really at its core, this debate, like you said, is not about, it's not really about anything that is in the interest of trans people. Mm -hmm. It's about creating um, people, an idea of a group to be afraid of, right? And it's about dividing society. It's about, you know, creating and fueling this political division um, for some very scary ends, right? They're, yeah. You know, it's about making people afraid of trans people so that government and uh, autocratic leaning people can intervene even more into our lives yeah. um, where it is not appropriate and where other people have the right answer, like doctors and families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For anyone that's listening that gets really anxious about this kind of thing, this really, I was shut down for a while yeah. when I was first coming out because I was just like, was so doomsday-ish about everything that was happening politically. Mm -hmm. And it feels even worse now than it was then. Yeah. And I'm in a really stable place, but I can't even imagine what it would have been like be looking at what's happening in our country now with the mentality that I had when I was first coming out. Yeah. Uh, it can be super overwhelming. It can be really scary, but I just like to go back to what we've been saying about taking care of yourself, yes. putting yourself first, taking care of your mental health. And if you feel it within you to stand up and be a part of the fight, awesome. I would be happy for you to join us, but it is okay for you to just take a step back from this and take care of yourself. There are awesome people like Michael out here fighting the fight for you, defending you with his whole heart. There are people in your corner that are fighting for you, and we're going to do the best that we can yeah. to make this country a better place. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be on you to change the world, and it's okay if you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. And things do get better, and things tend to look worse than they are. Yeah. And it's serious. Like this is serious stuff but like, it's going to be okay. We're going to find a way to yeah. take care of our own and to become more visible, like what we're doing with this podcast, trying to educate people. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we've seen this before, right? Like they're, um, the political world runs in cycles and there's always one group trying to tell everyone else that one or two groups of small minorities are the problem, mm -hmm. right? Whether that's immigrants or what you know trans people whatever it is gay people um we saw this in the in the 70s right of uh people like anita bryant going across the country telling people that uh gay and lesbian people were pedophiles and shouldn't be allowed to be teachers or involved in any way in children's lives right and that we know that's not true <laughs> we know that's a big scary lie um that is really deeply unfortunate for anyone to say um we we know that the antidote to that also is people getting to know people right when gay and lesbian people came out more when people realized that it's their children their grandchildren their aunts and uncles right their neighbors their best friend mm -hmm. that are gay and lesbian people that's what really shifted society because people said hey hold on a second 
that's wrong, Anita Bryant. I know that my brother is not a pedophile. He's just a really good guy, you know, or my sister is just a really lovely person and she just, she's also a lesbian and that's great and she's a wonderful person and I want her to be able to get married and, you know, pursue her career in life in the same way that I can, right? And so, um, you know, I think it's really important for us to remember that right now we are being, trans people are being used as a wedge issue, as a moral panic, right, as a public, debate uh, to drive people apart. The truth is, is that people are going to love you because of who you are. People are going to see your value, lean into your support system, trust them, tell them you need the, your, the, your support um, and build that support network because the more people that know you, the safer this world gets, right? <laughs> the stronger your yeah. support system is, the safer you are. Um, and this will not always be true, right? We will, ultimately we know that this country, laws that restrict personal freedom are do not win at the end of the day, right? Even if they do win temporarily, we beat them eventually. <laughs> and we're moving towards those wonderful ideals that were uh, laid out in our constitution and bill of rights. And we know that when we don't, we are able to repeal them and move forward. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you take steps back, Yep. but we keep moving we forward. We keep progressing yeah. too. So even if we take a few steps back, we're going to progress in the end. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I very much encourage uh, you, if you are a person who um, is an activist, if you uh, b be aware of other people, right? And be aware of other trans folks and how much they can tolerate, how much they can emotionally stand in this moment. And, if you're living in a state like Arizona, where, yes, we have a legislature that's trying to do wackadoodle things, but we've got a wonderful governor who's not letting that happen and who's vetoing those bills that come to her desk, um, you know, people like Landon and I will keep working with the governor and with other folks and with legislators. And if you're a trans person, a trans child, a family of a trans person here, you can take a little bit of a rest, you know? You don't you don't have to make this your daily narrative and you can focus on other things because these bills aren't gonna become law. You know, we also don't have to worry about that right now at the federal level. That does mean we have to be active in elections and make sure that that stays true and hopefully make sure that we get reasonable people of both parties in office who will actually attend to governing and not doing this kind of silly stuff. Playing it's, the game. Yeah, playing yeah. these games. They'll actually govern instead of uh, just looking for clickbait and media hits. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we uh, we got you. you there's, there's a big community working for you. Um, do the things you need to do to be a healthy and whole person. Yeah. For any of our listeners, trans and otherwise, yeah. Um, who are hearing this, who are learning about what it means to be trans, who are wanting to get involved and be a part of that effort, where is a good place to start? Oh gosh, such a great question, oh my goodness. Um, I think that if you wanna be a part of the political effort, um, there are amazing organizations throughout the country um, that are doing this kind of work. Um, I'm gonna give a, a plug for the Equality and Fairness Campaign because that's something that I co-founded and I'm deeply a part of. Um, we work in a bipartisan way, and so we work with Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Um, we work to try to create incremental common sense policy that gets us, that cuts through these political divides, right, and this political divisiveness, and actually creates common sense solutions that empower the right people to make those decisions and choices and, mm -hmm. um, you know, puts things like transition healthcare in the hands of doctors and families, <laughs> right, and not politicians. Um, and so, 
Um, but there's all kinds of organizations to get involved with. There's all kinds of work that needs to be done. There are local organizations like One Community. There are local support groups like Transpectrum, right? There's all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, if you want to learn a lot about policy, you can uh, Google the Movement Advancement Project. They've got a really great um, database that will uh, that is in map form and just a ton of information where you can learn about what the laws are in your state and in our country. Um, I encourage you to get to know your elected officials. That's one of the most powerful things you can do. Go and meet the people who are uh, governing in your name, whether that's your city officials, your state legislators, or your congressmen. Go and meet them. Go and talk to those folks because your story will make a difference. Um, I've seen that firsthand throughout my career. If someone knows you and your story as a trans person, as the family of a trans person, that's gonna change how they see trans people and that's gonna ultimately translate into how they vote um, and the bills that they run. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, just uh, take on what you can, get involved, go to a community meeting, go to a town hall, go and get trained if you wanna start training people about who trans people are, right? There are lots of organizations that will bring you in and train you and help you do that work. Mm -hmm. And we've got some good connections, so if yeah. you live somewhere specific and you don't yeah. know where to start, send us an email, us an email. leave email. a comment. We yeah. would be more than happy to oh, yeah. get you connected um, yeah. with somewhere that you can help out. Totally. Or we somewhere will. that can help you. So yes, exactly. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, we'll connect you. I mean, there are amazing people doing this work all over the country, like Kendra Johnson, who's the ED of Equality North Carolina, Sarah Burlingame at Wyoming Equality, right? Andrew Schneider at uh, Fairness West Virginia. We got lots of folks. I love that I know them. I know, they're I such so lovely cool. people. I love them. Yeah, they're the best humans. They're so lovely. Um, but yeah, if definitely, if you want to get involved, send us an email. We'll, we'll get you plugged in. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening with us. Uh, this has been, like, I was kind of imagining that these last two episodes would be very, like, elementary school basics like ABCs <laughs> of trans, but we've ended up talking about some really nuanced, complicated, exciting stuff. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for listening along. Thank you for being curious about the trans experience and putting the human back in the trans experience and just loving and respecting people. We really appreciate everybody who's a part of that curiosity with us. We do. Uh, and then it is always a joy to do this podcast with you. You're just so awesome, knowledgeable, kind, and compassionate. I just love learning from you. So thanks for teaching me today. I appreciate that. You too. I love doing these with you. Uh, excellent. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gender Curious. You can find us weekly on every major podcast provider on Facebook at Gender Curious Podcast and Instagram at Gender Curious Pod. Please like, follow, share. It would mean so much to us if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. And if you have any questions or just want to reach out, please feel free to email us at hi, H-I, at gendercuriouspod.com or leave us a comment on any of our social media. We'll be back next week with another episode, and until then, stay, stay curious. curious. Gender Curious is recorded at Full Swing Studios and is a member of the One Community Podcast Network.